A German called Peter Stupp by charm, of an enchanted girdle did much harm, transformed himself into wolfish shape, and in a wood did many years escape. This is a true discourse declaring the damnable life and death of one Peter Stupp, a most wicked sorcerer, who in the likeness of a wolf committed many murders, continuing this devilish practice twenty-five years, killing and devouring men, women, and children. Executed on the 31st of October in the town of Bedburg, Germany. The two passages you just heard are excerpts from first-hand documents recounting the Bedburg werewolf trial of the 16th century. This is just one example of the articles you will find within the pages of Fate Presents Werewolves and Dogmen. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. back loyal goblins tonight we delve into the legends lore and legacy of lycanthropy with the books werewolves and dogmen compiled and edited by the legendary rosemary ellen guiley this book is part of the fate presents series which collects and compiles articles from fate magazine dating back to 1948 guiley was executive editor of fate until her passing in 2019 I had the privilege of meeting her in person in 2017 at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. She was incredibly personable and even offered to sign my copy of Werewolves and Dogmen, turning it into one of my prized possessions. What is collected within these pages is a comprehensive look at the werewolf phenomena through time and different cultures. Whether your interest lies with the ancient Greek origins or modern dogmen encounters, you'll find something within this tome. The word lycanthropy comes from Greece and refers to the story of King Lycaon. It all begins, like most Greek myths, with Zeus, king of the gods. In his wanderings, he came to the court of King Lycaon and revealed his identity, demanding hospitality. From here, the details vary, but the theme remains the same. Regardless of his motives, Lycaon served roasted human to Zeus. Enraged by the insult, Zeus burned the palace to the ground and cursed Lycaon to take the form of a wolf. While the concept of lycanthropy appears from that point forward, the first use of the term werewolf appears in the book The Discovery of Witches, a witch-hunting manual printed in 1584. In this instance, shape-shifting, specifically into the form of a wolf, was a magical act taught by the devil. This is even more overt in the German accounts where the devil will deliver a wolfskin belt to the person who sells him their soul. When worn, this belt would transform them into a ravenous wolf. In fact, it seems that most historic werewolf accounts tell of a person fully becoming a wolf rather than a half-man, half-wolf. These accounts share some common traits. Bloodlust, carnality, wolf-like behaviors such as barking and growling, and post-transformation exhaustion. So how does one become a werewolf? We've already heard about godly curses and pacts made with the devil, but there are a few more ways. In some accounts, it is as simple as removing all your clothing. Granted, these accounts come from a time when nudity was considered taboo and being naked placed a person on the level of being a wild animal. 
Another method, similar to the German accounts, is to wear an enchanted belt. Only instead of wolf skin, the other option is to make one out of human skin. It is unclear whether demonic intervention is required in this instance, though. Two methods associated with witchcraft is through incantations or use of magical ointments. Unlike cursed werewolves, transformations of this type seem to be at will rather than involuntary. Finally, from folklore, it is said that a person can become a werewolf by drinking rainwater from a wolf's footprint. As with most folklore, this would be an extremely rare set of circumstances that would facilitate this. Did you notice something in that list? There was no mention of the moon. Historically, the full moon is not a common trigger for lycanthropy. In the cases where it is, it seems to be part of a curse. These curses tend to follow a simple if-then statement. For example, if the moon is full, you will become a wolf. So what about silver? There are no accounts associating werewolves with silver prior to the 1700s. And, in that one instance, it seems to have been an addition made in later retellings of the story. Most tales tell of people discovering the werewolf's human identity and confronting them during their post-transformation exhaustion, or simply causing the werewolf grievous injury. Ultimately, they are just wolves, albeit wolves with human intelligence, and that is what makes them dangerous. Surely, wolvesbane could be used as a deterrent, right? I mean, the name says it all. Wolf's Bane? The answer is a little yes and a little no. Some reports say it will kill or repel a werewolf. Some say that it is a key ingredient to becoming a werewolf. Either way, wolvesbane in large quantities is toxic. Considering that historic werewolves were otherwise mortal, poison would be a valid option for killing one. Now that we see that werewolves are really just people that can become wolves, there is one shortcut to becoming one. Vampirism. Historically, vampires didn't just turn into bats. They also could shapeshift into large black wolves. While in this form, they could lead a natural wolf pack or be part of an all-vampire pack. Of course, this form of lycanthropy falls a bit outside of the scope of this book. The second part of this book's subject, Dogmen, is a bit more obscure. Historically, there are as many accounts of dogmen as there are of werewolves, but they don't seem to have the same allure as their lupine cousins. Dogmen are exactly what they sound like, men with the head of a dog. This phenomena is known worldwide and seems to crop up in any culture that has canines. Ultimately, these creatures all share two traits. The first, obviously, is their appearance. The second is that they universally cannot speak human language. Instead, they rely on barks, growls, and sometimes sign language. While we don't seem to have too many modern werewolf encounters, the sightings of dogmen, conversely, seem to be more prevalent. The most notable recent case being the Beast of Bray Road, first reported by Linda Godfrey in 1991. This article, printed in a now-defunct newspaper, triggered an influx of reports from locals. While the phenomena is not isolated just to this area, the Beast of Bray Road solidifies Wisconsin's position as the hub for modern dogman accounts. Now that we've framed the theme of this book, let's look at a few of the articles. 
The first article is entitled, Would You Believe a Werewolf? Written by Douglas Hill and Pat Williams, originally printed in September of 1969. This specific article is an excerpt from their book, The Supernatural, published in 1965. It all begins in 16th century Germany with a man named Peter Stupp. According to trial records, Stupp made a deal with the devil and received a wolfskin belt which allowed him to, quote, exercise his malice on men, women, and children in the shape of some great beast. Initially, he roamed the countryside, killing and eating cattle and sheep, but he soon moved on to devouring people who, quote, offended him. Very rarely did he eat the men, though. His favorite prey was women and girls. These victims were often raped, killed, and then eaten. After a while, the insatiable lust brought on by the transformation became a part of his human life as well. One of the additional charges from his trial was incest resulting in a child. Apparently, this was too much, even for the devil, who sent Stoop a succubus to keep him occupied for the remainder of his 25-year reign of terror. Admission of the existence of this succubus was also part of his confession. After a series of murders, of which his own son was a victim, a search party gave pursuit. In an attempt to evade capture, Stoop removed his wolfskin belt and threw it away from his person and continued running. Fortunately, one of his pursuers witnessed this, and Stoop was soon captured. Stoop was tried, tortured, and beheaded, and his body was burned at the stake on October 31st. News of his capture and trial became international news, with word spreading via pamphlets throughout Europe. Despite best efforts of his pursuers, Stoop's wolfskin belt was never found. Man, Myth, or Monster by Joe Giannone, originally published in April of 1992. This article is about the circumstances surrounding the beast of Govadon, a werewolf-like creature that terrorized France in the mid-1700s. The first recorded encounter comes from a young shepherdess who was attacked by the beast. While she was severely mauled, her team of oxen drove the beast away from her before it killed her. She recalled that it was unlike any wolf she had ever seen before. It had reddish fur. Over the next few months, the beast killed and devoured three children in the region. By November, five months into the event, the total body count was in the double digits. At this stage, even the king had heard about the beast of Govadon and dispatched a contingent of royal dragoons. In one month's time, the dragoons slaughtered over 100 wolves, and the killing ceased. Convinced that the beast was one of those 100, they left the region. Immediately upon their departure, the beast struck again, killing three more children. He was wily, evading traps set for him. Beyond that, he often ignored livestock in favor of his favorite prey. Townsfolk formed regular patrols and hunting parties in their free time. Specialized wolf hunters were hired, and yet, the beast continued to evade them for two years. It all ended when the beast was killed, not by a trap, nor a soldier, nor a hunter, but by a random townsfolk who happened to be in the right place at the right time. A cursory autopsy was done, showing human remains within its stomach. The carcass was boxed up, and it began its trek to the Palace of Versailles. Unfortunately, the weather caused the corpse to rot, 
and quickly it had to be buried well before it completed its journey. And thus the Beast of Gavadon passed into legend. This story intrigued me, so after reading this article, I did some digging. There is no shortage of first-hand descriptions of this creature. In fact, several wanted posters exist in museum archives. These posters noted curious features, such as a short, broad face, a head of shaggy hair, a thin tail with little fur, except on the tip, and a telltale black stripe of fur running down his back. If this sounds familiar, then you may have reached the same conclusion that many modern historians have. The town of Govadon was not beset by a werewolf, but was instead under attack by an escaped African lion. You see, traveling zoos and menageries were not always the most responsible organizations. When they were strapped for cash, or when they simply could no longer afford to feed their animals, they would sell them, kill them, or otherwise just let them loose. It is quite likely that the Beast of Govadon was the result of sheer negligence. Before we continue with the next article about the Beast of Bray Road, I want to tell you a brief anecdote. Two pages into reading this article, I noticed a photo of Bray Road itself. It looked extremely familiar, and while I have seen pictures of Bray Road before, something about this specific photo stood out to me. I couldn't really place where I had seen it, so I continued reading. In the very next paragraph, the boundaries of the dogman's territory were described. One location stood out. Waukesha, Wisconsin. Does that name sound familiar? It should. Several episodes ago, I did a show on the Slenderman, and many of the events that transpired took place there. Wisconsin? What's going on? The Beast of Bray Road's First Appearance by Lynn Fetus, originally published in 2013. The Beast of Bray Road made its way into the public eye in the early 90s, though accounts date back much, much farther. Settler accounts go back to the 1850s, and tribal stories go further back into oral tradition. In Linda Godfrey's 1991 newspaper article, the Beast was described as kneeling on the edge of the road, eating roadkill. When a passing car caught it in the headlights, it calmly stood up on its hind legs and walked into the night. Local authorities had several theories, including one involving a hypothetical two-legged dog. Much to Godfrey's surprise, instead of meeting with ridicule, her story garnered more witness accounts, some going back to the 80s. Accounts were pretty uniform. The creature was between five and six feet tall with canine-like legs, a dog's head, upright pointed ears, and a long, bushy tail. It seems the beast was big, but not nearly as monstrous as Hollywood werewolves. While it has been reported to interact menacingly towards humans, the beast tends to stick to wild game and roadkill for its meals. The first recorded written account of this creature took place in the 1850s and involved the family of John and Anne Flynn Danan, Irish immigrants who had moved to the area several years earlier. In late May, a creature matching descriptions of the beast attempted to kidnap their three-year-old child, Catherine. The parents pursued the beast for about 90 yards before it dropped the girl and continued to flee. Three days later, it made another attempt, though this time the parents were ready, and the beast only made it 30 yards before dropping the victim. 
locals who heard the story tried to assure the Danans that it was just a bear. But the family, they knew better. What kind of bear picks up children with its arms and flees on two legs? Roughly 20 years later, the creature made another appearance. It had attacked some, quote, large and rough farm dogs. Again, it was reported that it was really just a bear, but witnesses scoffed at the suggestion. Bears may be able to stand and walk on two legs for a short distance, but none had ever been known to run. Since then, the dogman seems to have decided to avoid humans. Theories abound as to the identity of the dogman, ranging from bears and cougars to humans in costumes, although any person attempting a hoax of this kind risks being shot. For now, the Beast of Bray Road remains a mystery. These three articles are just a sample of the 30 presented in this book. They range from the most basic descriptions of lycanthropy to harrowing first-hand adventure stories that defy belief. The most valuable insights come from Guiley in her introductory chapter and the assembled appendices at the end of the book. That doesn't diminish the exceptional articles conferred within the rest of the pages. If you have even a passing interest in the subject, Fate Presents Werewolves and Dogmen will be a fantastic addition to your collection. This week's article is entitled A Tomty by Any Other Name, written by Lee Svensson and published on Patheos.com. To begin, what is a tomty? A tomty is a Swedish term for a house spirit. In Norway, they are called the Nisa, and in Ireland, they are known as brownies. Think of them sort of like Dobby the house elf from Harry Potter. Only, these are a little bit cuter. Think of garden gnomes and you're probably on the right track. A big part of the belief and honoring of spirits of place is to leave offerings, usually of food. In the case of the tomty, a small bowl of porridge with a healthy amount of butter. In addition to a house entity, there are also creatures whose dominion covers a large area of land rather than a single building or homestead. These entities are broadly known as landvater or landwites. With basic definitions out of the way, this article is not about Tomty or Landvater. At least, not exactly. You see, the author is a second-generation Norwegian living in eastern Pennsylvania. She grew up hearing tales of the elves from her grandfather and learning how to leave them offerings. But now, she lives in an area where the spirits of her ancestors don't exist. That doesn't mean that similar spirits aren't there, though. Because of this, she has had to adapt. Where she lives is the traditional land of the Lenape, the Shawnee, and the Susquehannock, and so she looks to their practices for ways to properly honor the spirits of the land. While they may not turn down a bowl of buttery porridge, they would certainly enjoy a healthy pinch of tobacco just a bit more. As she herself says, It's not about me. It's about who came before me and remembering the entities that remain and honoring them in a context that they understand. Imagine if someone had asked you what your favorite pie was, and you said pecan, but then they brought you an apple pie. You may eat it, but really, what you want is that pecan pie. What's the moral of the story? Bring the appropriate pie. That's all I have this episode. 
As always, links to the book and article are posted in the show notes. Our next episode won't be the normal news briefs episode. Instead, I will have a special interview with a UFO witness. Together, we will be discussing recent UFO news and our own theories around the phenomena. I am also in the process of setting up a Patreon page for the Esoteric Book Club. While I don't have any rewards for patrons at the moment, if you get anything from listening to my show, it would be nice if you could buy me a metaphorical cup of coffee each month. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and at esotericbookclub.org. You can write to me at jason at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. Their music can be found at bandcamp.com and at wearehellojune.com. If you like what you hear, please leave me a review. And until next time, remember, stay weird. Stay weird.